When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We had recorded an episode previously, and then this came out, so we're popping it on the beginning of the episode we had recorded just a day ago, and to help us is WBCD reporter, weekend anchor, Riley Benson. He's been on with us before from Charleston. Hi, Riley. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Good, man. And Seton's here with me, and last night started texting furiously because you had the report uh, about the latest with Gloria Satterfield. Tell people about it. Yes, I talked to the Satterfield's attorney yesterday, Ronnie Richter, and he confirmed to me uh, that SLED, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, has asked the family to exhume the body of Gloria Satterfield. Obviously, this comes four years after her death, after a trip and fall accident in Murdoch's home, Moselle, there in Colleton County. You know, some of the interesting things, obviously, there wasn't an autopsy performed on Gloria Satterfield's body after uh, she passed away after a lengthy hospital stay. The coroner wasn't notified, so last September, I believe it was, coroner down there, she wrote a note to Chief Mark Keel, you know, noting that her predecessor wasn't notified of this death, there wasn't an autopsy, now, state investigators have asked the family to exhume that body. Uh, they're going to look for a few things. Sparing some details, it's going to be kind of hard to find a lot now. It's been four years. But really, they're going to see if her injuries are consistent with a fall that down a set of stairs. Obviously, you know, in the 911 calls, we hear that she's bleeding from the side of her head. So, you know, they're going to try to match up, look at the bones, obviously skeletal remains, and see if those injuries are consistent. See if there's anything that's not consistent with what, the Murdochs had told investigators four years ago, back in 2018, when Gloria fell down, fell down those stairs. Wow. Yeah, we've been seeing rumors on social media for months now about a possible exhumation of her body. And so now, I guess what we see on social media has come to light to be true, that they are requesting it. But my question is, wouldn't the medical records give us this evidence? Well, that's a good question. I don't know how much exactly is out there. I mean, you know, like I mentioned, coroner is saying they were never notified of her death True. and there was no autopsy. So I think there's a very good chance that a lot of things maybe slipped through the crack. You don't have that analysis. You don't have the evidence. Obviously, you probably have what whatever was done at the hospital. Right. You know, she was there for three weeks. She died of a cardiac event. But, you know, necessarily, I don't know how much digging was done. And, and certainly you would would have thought there would have been an autopsy, regardless, following the circumstances of Gloria's death and, and how she got to the hospital. I would have to think that SLED knows more than they're letting on, maybe, because I would imagine it takes a lot to have a, a legal reason to exhume a body. Right. I would think it would have to be something more than insurance fraud. Would you think that would have to be more than just insurance fraud situation? Speaking to Richter, Ronnie Richter yesterday, the thing that kind of stood out when it came to both SLED and the family is they accepted the details, the facts that they were given in the beginning. They had no reason not to believe Alec Murdoch. But in light of everything that's came out over the last few years or, you know, the last few months, rather, the different things, they don't really believe or they have questions as to what actually caused Gloria to fall. I think that's a question that investigators have, too. So. Wow. I think this is really about seeing if there's anything that could prove that the fall wasn't just a trip and fall and her hitting her head on the brick stairs going into the house. Was something else done? 
for an example, and this isn't connected to this at all, you're looking for things like, according to them, you're looking for things where, was she hit with an object? Was there something that would say that she didn't fall down the stairs? I think that's the question that they're trying to answer. And like I said, I think that's going to be kind of hard four years later. But I think the biggest Mm. thing is what actually happened to Gloria is the question that's still out there. And I think that's the one that they're trying to kind of pinpoint and see if they can find the answers to. Do we know any time frame on when this might happen? We don't. I think this is something that they're going to do at the point where they feel is respectful to the family, to Gloria, and is convenient for everyone involved. The family is expected to say yes. I don't know exactly when this could happen, if that means a couple weeks, if it's a couple months. I would assume everything with the investigative process be sooner rather than later. The family seems on board to do this, so I would expect it to be soon. This has to be very traumatic for the family. Yes. Riley, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Riley Benson, WBCD out of Charleston. Check out his work. Doing a good job covering all the Murdoch saga that's going on. Thanks, and right. One of the oh, first reporters on the scene. Yes, Riley was one of the. Yeah, that's right. I forgot we, you were one of the first reporters on the scene uh, next morning after the uh, the murders of Maggie and Paul. We appreciate it, Riley. Thank you, man. Appreciate you guys as always. Take care. Thanks, Riley. Impact of influence: the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, friend. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker, uh, ready to roll through another episode. Some really cool things to talk about today, interesting things. Again, grateful and thankful for you listening to this and maybe rate it. That'd be cool. Maybe even a little, a little comment at the end. Uh, that'd be even cooler. And reach out at Murdoch Podcast on Facebook and MurdochPodcast.com. Love to hear your comments, thoughts, questions ideas of what uh, things that we should put in an episode we'd love it so Seton start us off what is this uh, episode going to be about okay so I want to start off with an article that was written by John Monk with a state paper in South Carolina so he wrote an article on a person named Chris Wilson who is an attorney in Bamberg and a longtime friend of Alec Murdoch I want to explain before you move on that those who don't know the area uh, in the low country Bamberg, South Carolina is about a 40-minute drive to Hampton, right near uh, Walterboro, that whole area. So it's close to the Murdochs and all that is involved with that. Okay. So Wilson's attorney, Bakari Sellers, has confirmed that Wilson was the Bamberg attorney that was mentioned in one of Alec Murdoch's indictments. He is said to be cooperating with authorities. According to Sellers, Chris was blindsided and had no knowledge or participation in any of Alec Murdoch's alleged crimes. We'll get to that later, but first I want to talk about the biggest bombshell in the article. I think this is big. Alec's attorney, Jim Griffin, of course he has Griffin and Harpootley, and Jim Griffin said that Alec was talking to Chris Wilson, the Bamberg attorney we mentioned, during the time frame where Maggie and Paul were murdered on June 7th of last year. Seton, talk about what Griffin said as far as the phone calls and conversation between Wilson and Murdoch the night of the murders. So before we get to what he said, let's go over the timeline. Okay, the interesting thing here is in the Monk article, it talks about Jim Griffin saying that Murdoch left the Moselle estate around 9, drive to his mom's house, that's 20 minutes, returned to the estate around 10, which we know 10.07 means the 911 call, and talks about talking to Chris and the thing. But seven months ago, when Cody Alcorn of... Fox News Carolinas. Fox News Carolina, 
talked to Jim Griffin. He said that uh, Alec was at the bedside the entire time where the murders were thought to take place, which would be 9 to 9.30, right? Yes, yeah. if, if the report is if, correct. If the report is correct. Paul's death certificate says 9, right? Yes, it said on the death certificate it says 9 p.m. is the actual or presumed time of death. Okay, so if we're saying around nine, I, I, around nine to me is close. Right. Well, and also what the Colleton County coroner told the Island Packet back this summer was that the approximate time of death was between nine and nine thirty. Okay, so let's assume that Jim Griffin is is being literal when he says he's by his mom's bedside. Alec was there from nine to nine thirty, which means he would have left approximately eight forty. But here's our question. And you made a good point about this. When he left Moselle, were Paul and Maggie there? We don't know, do we? So we know that John Marvin has told us Paul had plans to go back to Moselle to have dinner with Maggie. Right. So at 8.40, he leaves. It's very possible Maggie and Paul were there. And at 9 o'clock, Paul is murdered, somewhere thereabouts. If he left at 8.40... Paul's killed at nine. That's a 20 minute. That's a very short little window from the time Alec left till Paul was killed. And also, while Alec is at the house, his mom's house. Right. In this interview seven months ago, he says that he was watching a game show with his mother, which seems odd that you would drive 20 minutes there, 20 20 minutes minutes back back to spend a short amount of time at this time of night to watch a game show. And he uh, and his mom had help. Right. She suffers from dementia and has round-the-clock care. And we also cleared up, there had been some questions in previous episodes, if Alec's dad was at the house, but he, he wasn't. He was at the hospital. According to Jim Griffin's interview with Cody, uh, however many months ago, seven months ago. So he goes over, sees the mom, and then comes back and arrives, and Maggie and Paul are dead. He's got about a 37-minute window there. But I just thought that was interesting because I think it's the first time we heard anybody say specifically, it's not, it's not specific because he's saying around nine, but even that late. We didn't, we didn't, we weren't even sure if he was there into the evening right. at, until now. It, it we knew he seems, took a nap. It seems very coincidental that he left around nine and the murders happened shortly thereafter. Yes. Let's talk about what Griffin says that Chris Wilson may be able to testify to. He says that Elk's demeanor was absolutely normal and that it, their conversation was just about usual stuff, everyday matters. But I, but it was a lot of phone calls. At least I don't talk everyday matters to people four times in the phone because we believe it's two times there and two times back. It is unusual, but my husband's best friend, when he's driving, literally calls him probably two times. Oh, really? Maybe so. I'm just the one who hates to talk to people. Maybe it's the personal issue I have. Okay, so uh, that is going to be very important, possibly, if, if they might ask him to, let's assume, that, you know, if Alec gets indicted on this, Chris Wilson's testimony would be required, would be important, I would think. Oh, for sure. And there were a couple of other just interesting tidbits that I took out of this article One was that Chris Wilson was one of the passengers on the airplane to go to the College World Series in 2015. And that was allegedly paid for by funds that were Hakeem's Pinckney 
settlement. Yes, that was that was one of the big stories that that uh, the big part of that story that made it seem even more decadent yes. was the fact that they got this this private plane to and, go to the World Series. And Wilson, you know, is says he doesn't know he didn't know how that was being paid for. And if I was going on That's a private possible. plane, I might not ask how it was paid for. Why would you? I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm not going to say the guy's totally innocent or guilty, but I, I wouldn't ask. Like, you know Murdoch you. has money. You assume he has money, even though it turns out he didn't necessarily have that much money. But you assume if Alec Murdoch tells you to get on his private plane to go somewhere, you assume that's just how he travels. Because we know what he does. There's been pictures of him driving, driving on uh, private planes. Yeah, it wasn't the first time. Yeah. Um, we also know that the families spent time together on Memorial Day, the weekend before Maggie and Paul were murdered. Wow. And they both had family homes in Edisto so close together. So they yeah, definitely they, had a lot of close connections. 30 years. Okay, so now let's get back to Alex's indictments and how they involve Chris Wilson, who has been identified as the Bamberg attorney in the indictments. And that brings us to our legal analyst, former district attorney and former defense attorney, John Snyder. All right, John, uh, these indictments, Chris Wilson and Alec Murdoch, both personal injury attorneys, they worked together a number of times. One of those was the case of Andrew Ferris. Ferris received injuries as a result of an accident in 2015. He received a $5.5 million award, of which the lawyers would receive $2 million in fees. Wilson was responsible for distributing the money to attorneys. Murdoch was to receive almost $800,000 in attorney fees. And then, Seton, what happened? So Murdoch convinces Wilson to write three separate checks to Murdoch personally instead of PMPD. Murdoch told Wilson that the law firm knew that he was going to be getting these checks personally. And what happened next was someone at PMPD questioned why the fees had not come into the law firm's trust account. We should mention if you new PMPED is the name or was the name of the law firm where Alec Murdoch worked along with his brother and a whole family history there. So I guess then Murdoch contacts Wilson after this is coming to light. And I guess people with the law firm are like, where is this money? And tells him that he will send the money back to him. And then could he pay the law firm? So Murdoch wires him $600,000, which was almost $200,000 less than what he received. The article quote is, shortfall that Murdoch knew full well that Wilson would have to cough up. So that means Wilson's got to come up with the money. Right. And if this actually is truthful, then why was Wilson still hanging out with Alec Murdoch in the weeks prior to Maggie and Paul's death? John Slater, the question we have is, I assume the normal way it works is what was supposed to happen, which is Chris Wilson, he takes the, the insurance payment or whatever it is and gives it to the law firm, but instead he gave it directly to Alec. Okay, how much of a red flag is that? Yeah, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is awful. And then you, you listen to it again, you're like, okay, so Wilson and Alec were on the same side of a case, and, and it sounds like maybe some other attorneys were as well. The money came into Wilson and his law firm, he paid the client what, what the client settlement amount was, and he also was handling the disbursement of the attorney's fees to the various attorneys involved. Mm -hmm. So he paid himself, he paid Alec, and he paid somebody else. And so the, 
the question is, should he have paid Alec or should he have paid the law firm? And was he doing something wrong by paying Alec that, you know, against the interest of either A, his client, B, the insurance company, or C, the bar? And I'm not sure in this case he's done anything that he wasn't supposed to do uh, if he was instructed by Alec co-counsel to make, I've, I've earned this, therefore you write the check to me at, at this address. And then the issue with the payment is between Alec and his law firm, not his law firm and Wilson. Okay, I got you. Alex is his friend. He says, hey, the law firm knows. It's cool. Just write me this check. Yeah, but my question is, again, if I had a friend who kind of scammed me out of $200,000, I don't think <laughs> they would be a friend of mine anymore. Well, on the shortfall, yeah. Again, we have all this knowledge now of the plots, the plans, the length that Alec went to deceive people, the, you know, just all of that. And at that time... He was the former head of the Academy for Trial Lawyers for South Carolina. Mm-hmm. He was a, a multi-generational established figure in the legal community. So he might have explained away to Wilson what the issue was and, and, and been like, oh, there's some error here mm-hmm. and we'll yeah, we'll be sure to get it get it taken care of. Yeah, cause I guess we don't really we don't know if that two hundred thousand ended up getting back to Wilson. It was just short at that time, right? So he could have paid him back at some point. We, we don't know. And, and the, what, probably what happened is the law firm did an audit and was like, well, hey, uh, Alec, you, you got a settlement check for 800000 and where where's our four hundred? Because, <laughs> you know, the firm gets, typically the house keeps half and the individual lawyer gets the other half. The article says that the firm kind of became aware of, started questioning when they were actually getting the money that was supposed to go into a trust for Ferris. And when that money started coming in, they're like, well, what about attorney's fees? <laughs> oh, so that, that, because that's the law firm sees this money. They're like, where's our percentage? Basically what happened, right? Well, they see the, they see the, they see the, right. the money that was going to the client being paid out through their trust fund as it should be. And that, but then the money's not going out to them as it should be. And so, the, you know, the partners are rightfully going to ask, like, hey, where, where's our cut? Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership 
for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Roller coaster prices, supply chain glitches, political unease. They do their best to wreck my business plans. With so many unknowns, how do I know I'm making the right decisions? Aon helps me stay on top of things. They have expert points of view on volatility from around the world, paired with local insight that helps me get back on solid ground. Better decisions. Aon. So another thing I found curious was there were three checks written by Wilson to Alec for these attorney's fees. And I thought that was curious, and I just wanted to get your take on it. Again, it, it may be that he just said, do it this way, or again, there might be been a good reason. And look, everybody just made, you know, almost a million dollars. They're, they're not real, everybody's riding on endorphins at that point. Sure, I'll write them in three checks, whatever. That doesn't raise a red flag to me because, you know, any deposit over, it, it like, that doesn't seem like that's going around any regulation to, to break it up. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, so if, if, if somebody says, write me a check for nine ninety nine ninety nine because I don't want it to hit the, you know, the notification at the bank, you'd be like, yeah, no, it, I owe you 11000 so here's a check for 11000 it, it doesn't sound like there's some reason. And, and or it could have been like that Wilson's bank would only let him write checks for so much each day. Well, let's also, let's also not forget that Alec knew what he was doing. He's been running these kind of uh, shuffling of money around and taking money and using his first personal use for years. He knew what to say to who and when and have them not be suspicious until, you know, September of 2021 when it all unraveled. Here's something else kind of interesting with, with the details. The, the accident happened in 2015. The settlement wasn't until six years later. Even though the numbers of these checks are big, when you, when you run that out over the years, it's, some of it starts to explain how, like, okay, so there might have been two years where the attorneys didn't make any money at all. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all of their cases are taking one, two, three, four, five, six years to settle. And so it's kind of interesting to think about, like, maybe some of the financial emergency that predicated Alex's fraud that various court documents allege was based on the fact that he'd be up a couple million and then down a few million not soon after. I see exactly what you're saying. So he, and he can, and he can easily tell people, Hey, I got a big settlement coming in. No problem here, guys. I got a big two, you know, $5 million settlement coming in and people would believe him. It makes sense. So I think we should get to a few listener questions. So the first one we've had a lot of questions about is RICO. And I know we've discussed this in a previous episode, but I just thought maybe you could explain it and how this might come into play. So RICO is a federal statute that lays out, basically, when there's a conspiracy and multiple parties are involved, it it kind of takes things from a civil case over to a criminal case. 
and or it takes things from that, that might be there might be a little bit of money involved for fines to being big big dollar signs for what's owed by the wrongdoer involved in a RICO scheme. And so we keep hearing about that, either waiting for actual federal charges to be issued or in, in these um, civil claims, someone will allege a RICO conspiracy uh, at some point, which, which then trigger, you know, it, it kind of triggers federal law and federal results. Once it, I would imagine once it turns to RICO and federal, there is a whole raining down of hell of the ability of the feds to do a lot more digging and a lot more things and a lot more, you know, they're going to take it if it's a slam dunk kind of thing than if it's just the state, right? I mean, this, this is a hell hath no fury like the feds. They don't like to lose, yeah. one. Two, they don't act until they've got everything. They don't just fire off indictments or they don't fire off target letters. And so it is a whole different ball game and something that you can't ignore. And the, the only thing that might keep the feds from getting involved is the sheer weight and number of state court uh, cases. At this stage, Alec is looking at lots and lots of years in prison. The federal uh, circuit that's involved, or district, may say, hey, we're going to pass on this, not because he didn't do anything wrong, but because we can't keep him in jail any longer than the rest of his life. So because of this all, we have had some banking questions come to top of mind, and especially when we're to talk to somebody maybe small, uh, involved in a small community bank like the Palmetto State Bank, or similar in some ways. And that's why we're bringing in Carter Leak IV, President and CEO of Commercial Lending at the Bank of St. Francisville in Louisiana. Hello, Carter. Thanks for being here. Good afternoon. So court documents filed by the co-receivers who were appointed in November to oversee Alex's finances give us a look into Alex's financial situation. They were asking questions to Palmetto State Banks about loans and lines of credit that were given to Alex. Okay, so my first question is, in 2015, Murdoch had a line of credit of $500,000. He used up this line of credit and had a negative checking balance of over $50,000. Then the line of credit was increased to a million. And so is that is that usual? No, that's that's not typical. It's possible um, if if the uh, the borrower had some some other interests and some wealth and some in some other assets that they pledged to the bank um, and had some cash flow, strong cash flow coming from other places. But um, just on the face of what you're asking, um, it would it would not be normal. But um, you know, every situation is is always a little bit different. We know he did have a significant amount of land that was probably worth a lot of money. So I guess that could have potentially been used mm-hmm. as some sort of collateral. That's right. And generally with a bank, there has to be there has to be land. I mean, there has to be collateral. And then there has to be um, cash flow as well. He could, he could have been in the process of developing it or who knows what, what plans he had. But um, those, those two aspects need to be there uh, from a lending perspective. Does it? Does anything go into play, like in a situation where uh, a client of the bank has been with them for decades and they have been taking care of business up to that point? 
Because sometimes they, and you said you could say like, I got some money coming down uh, any minute now. Yeah, com- community banking is different than you know so w- with some of the large banking, and those relationships do come into play. Um, it, it, what's it's what makes community bank relevant in in that in that the relationships and you have the trust and you and you know that customers are going to be good for it, even if they're running through um, a tough time. It's all good until it bites you in the butt at some point, like it did in this case. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so my banker mentioned this thing called a sweeper loan and how that might work come into play with negative checking balances. Could, so could you explain to us what that is? There, there are, are uh, products that are set up between a line of credit and um, a checking account where an individual may write a check. They don't have money in their checking account, so they write a $25,000 check. And it would be funded by the line of credit. And so if they had a line of credit that had the available balance, you would transfer the $25,000 from the line of credit into the checking account to replenish the checking account. Yeah, well, you're just they're basically just moving. The line of credit is there in case there is a shortfall in checking, it can be used. So is that what I understand? That's right. Okay. Exactly. We know there was a situation in this report where Murdoch, again, in 2017, had a negative checking account balance of $30,000. And I just wanted to find out from a banking perspective, would this have raised red flags? And what do you do if a customer has this kind of negative banking balance? Well, you know, as a as a check comes through, the bank has an opportunity to to uh, return the check uh, and not pay on the check. So uh, presumably the bank had the opportunity to send back the check that came through. They chose to pay it. Uh, and that's what created the uh, the overdraft of $30,000. You know, if they did, if they were willing to do that, there would likely be, at least at our bank, there would have been uh, lots of communication with the borrower or the, the checking account holder and a lot of certainty around um, uh, the customer being able to fund that within a very short period of time. That's really interesting. Why would the bank decide to pay these checks that were not available, funds weren't available for? Uh, it, it, it could be. I mean, it, it gets back to the relationship. It, it gets back to working with your customer. And you know, they may have been a customer for a long time. And you know, they may have a lot of credit that's going to be opened you know, two days from now, but can't get opened because of uh, you know regulatory issues and, and getting the loan completed and so you may you may pay a, an overdraft knowing that the lot of credit will fund the checking account two days later so hypothetically someone could say because they have this relationship with their buddy they could say I've got a major personal injury lawsuit case that's about to cash for me for a few million dollars is going to be a few days or a week or a month. Can you, can we just wait for that? And it's happened before, say successfully, could they make, could, right. do you have the, do you have the ability to make the call? Does the banker have the ability to make the personal call on that? Or is there like a federal law or something? No, they, the banker can make the call. It, it, at that point in essence, in essence is, is a debt okay. um, that you have to be comfortable that they're going to repay. As a banker, I may have some level of some limit that I can approve uh, within the bank. Let's okay. say fifty thousand dollars of, of an overdraft account. And at that point, after that, you might have to go to the board or somebody else to get approval to to have a negative checking account balance. So we also know that Murdoch wrote a significant amount of checks totaling over a hundred and fifty thousand dollars to Curtis 
Edward Smith, and this is the alleged co-conspirator in the Labor Day murder-suicide plot. Known as Cousin Eddie in, throughout the case, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so would this have alerted anti-fraud or money laundering safeguards in your bank? Not necessarily. The Bank Secrecy Act and the Anti-Money Laundering Act, un- under those regulations, we, we look at the risk of our borrowers. And uh, based upon that risk is uh, how intensely we monitor their activities. You're not going to dig deep into who someone's writing checks to if you think the person who's writing the checks is good. You don't care about who they're writing them That's to. That's right. Yeah. Well, and it also depends on what they're doing with the checks. I mean, um, we're really focused on in, in, in the anti-money laundering um, mm-hmm. aspect. We're focused as much on the cash. So they're coming and they're cashing a check. Gotcha. Above ten thousand dollars, we we begin to monitor that and you know communicate that to to regular regulators and that sort of stuff. Um, but if it's just a check that's written and he is just depositing his bank account, there, there's nothing necessarily suspicious about that that would lead us to um, to look deeper into it. Now banks have audits on the regular, I'm sure. Are the audits like a random thing, or is there an algorithm, or are, are any of the things that we've said so far something that would be caught in your just regular yearly or monthly or quarterly audit? Regulators, state and federal regulators would look at, definitely look at lines of credit, would look at overdrafts, you know, especially if if a customer, if one of your larger customers has a bunch of overdrafts during a period of time, mm-hmm. they may they may question that, and and why is it uh, prudent to to lend money to uh, to somebody that's having financial trouble? And so, I just wanted to just quickly touch on how small bank loan procedures differ from larger banks. Yeah, I mean, larger banks are are a lot more thorough. A lot of times, they're in the relationship there uh, with a community bank or a smaller bank in the way that um, you know. The, there's usually a, you're a lot closer proximity wise and relationally. And so a lot of times the procedures aren't as, um, as strict, you know, such as, you know, one, one things that larger banks, if you're, if you're buying a home, one thing a larger bank will require is that they, they know exa- all the funds that came in and out of your account for the last 60 days, let's say. And, and if a, a large amount came into your bank account, they have to know where it came from, and, and and kind of trace it to its source. Um, whereas a smaller bank, we usually don't have that strict procedures. And because you do work for a smaller bank that's community-based. I do. And so that's kind of the relationship you have with your customers? That's correct. Carter, I uh, really appreciate you taking time to uh, chat with us. Uh, really, uh, Absolutely. Ho- hopefully I was able to provide you the content you needed. <laughs> Thanks, man. We'll talk to you. Thank yep. you. And so we're bringing back John Snyder because we thought of a couple of questions once we got into the banking thing that probably are more in John's uh, legalese fire away, Seton. Question for you, John, is that in the deposition of ex-banker Russell Lafitte, past due payments were discussed in weekly board meetings and Alex's balance was periodically discussed. The co-receivers have subpoenaed Palmetto State Bank for their board meeting minutes and Palmetto State Bank has sent a letter objecting to this request. So do you think this is reasonable? I, I, I think it's reasonable, but I don't think it's a winning objection. If there was a conspiracy between Lafitte and Alec, then the, 
the decisions and the things that were discussed in those meetings is relevant to show what what Russell's knowledge was, what his state of mind was, and what instructions he gave the board or didn't give. And, and so by that, I mean, if he told them, oh, you know, I spoke with Alec and, and the money will be here next week, and the board's like, okay, and they move on, uh, when he did not, in fact, know that or he knew the opposite to be true, I think that's absolutely material to all the parties that are interested in, in any, any collusion or planning between the two of those uh, defendants in different cases. Well, and just one last thing. Speaking of Russell Lafitte, he has asked for his bond and conditions to be lowered. I think we previously said he had a $1 million bond and was on house arrest with monitoring. Uh, so just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So, you know, we talked about bond and we talked about the standard. But again, we're, you know, we're six weeks past maybe the last discussion on that or even four weeks. And we're starting to see more things where... Money's coming in and out that doesn't line up with how bankers are supposed to be banking. Uh, it may be that the bond is reasonable, especially depending on how much knowledge Lafitte had of why money was going this way or that way. And or if he was getting compensated for not following through with his duties. So if he was profiting off of this, if it wasn't just doing a favor, but he was actually making money on the side, then, you know, bond might be appropriate. Thank you, John. All right. Talk, talk to you later. All right. So before we wrap, we got a comment from Jack who said, uh, this is an ongoing story. So I catch up on the podcast every few weeks. Fascinating story, a little complex. In addition to the murder mystery, there's an ongoing white-collar crime and possible corruption. The podcast does an excellent job of explaining the narrative and bringing experts. So they've had, far, they've had an attorney, an FBI agent, a weapons expert, even 911 operators. The first couple of episodes were technically weak. But stick with it. Gets better. I was very skeptical about Seton. <laughs> but then... I came around. She's really stepped up to the plate. And I thought, oh, yeah, these days everybody who can talk thinks they have a story to tell as a podcast. But she is winning. Aww. She lives in the area and the local people must like what she's doing because this is the only podcast where I've heard the local voice. Sure, there's some answers in these deaths. Well, that makes me feel happy. I actually saw a review somewhere that someone said, I, I thought Seton was a bored doctor's housewife and that she would not stick with it. But... That I've improved a lot. So actually, I thought that was a very, very accurate very rev review. And they said if I if if it became work, maybe I wouldn't continue. But yes, maybe that has some truth to it. So and you're, you're I really appreciate hard. the uh, compliment. And I also want to give a shout out to my mother-in-law who had a fall in our house this week. It was pretty traumatic, but she is on the mend. And we had hoped to get this episode out earlier in the week, but sometimes yeah, life happens. That. Yes, absolutely. Our prayers and thoughts with her, and uh, we want you to give us your thoughts. And again, hey, we can take it. So fire away. Uh, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com. Uh, thanks again. We give credit to the story we really dealt with today was the work of John Munkin State Paper, so we give him a shout. Yes, that was good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, we will talk again soon, friend. 
It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Loop. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh, no. Oh, yes. But fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at on the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.